I'll just review my own experience as a young surgeon. I felt non-union surgeries to be almost a little bit overwhelming and somewhat maybe above my abilities. However, as I've gone along and I've had a more stable foundation of principles in treating fractures, and I think your, your foundation has to even be more steady when you start doing non-union surgery, I've actually grown to enjoy non-union treatment just because these patients are usually in a really world of hurt. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. This message is from OTA sponsor BioVentus. Treating non-union fractures can be challenging, especially in today's environment. Exogen may help. For 25 years, the Exogen Ultrasound Bone Healing System has been trusted by over 10,000 physicians to treat over a million patients. So if you're thinking about using an adjunct therapy for non-union fractures, think Exogen. Learn more at exogen.com radio. Exogen is indicated for the healing of non-union fractures and for accelerating the healing of indicated fresh fractures with no known contraindications. Hello and welcome to the OTA podcast channel. We're back with the third episode in our non-union symposium. If you haven't checked out the first two episodes, I invite you to do that. The first episode, Dr. Dave Goodspeed went over a checklist of eight principles that are important in preoperative evaluation and planning for non-union treatment. And then the second episode, Dr. Spence Reed from Penn State went over some of the biomechanical principles that are important for non-union treatment. And so now we're moving on to the third topic, which is biological considerations in non-union treatment. And so I'd like to welcome Dr. Jerry Lang, one of my colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin, to go over that with us. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you, Paul. I'm glad you asked me to participate in the non-union symposium. I'll just review my own experience as a young surgeon. I felt non-union surgeries to be almost a little bit overwhelming and somewhat maybe above my abilities. However, as I've gone along and I've had a more stable foundation of principles in treating fractures, and I think your, your foundation has to even be more steady when you start doing non-union surgery. I've actually grown to enjoy non-union treatment just because these patients are usually in a really world of hurt and you have to quite carefully craft your plan. I'm glad that Dr. Goodspeed brought out your checklist because we all think about these concepts about we need to put together a plan that's likely to work and one that has a good chance of success. And believe me, some of my happiest patients are ones who've actually had non-unions for a long period of time. And together with them, you're able to solve the Rubik's Cube, so to speak. In any event, I think one of the things we need to look at when we're assessing a non-union is how biologically active is a non-union. And I think we talk in general terms of a non-union that has a pretty good local biology in the sense that we see quite a bit of callus at the fracture site. Those to me are like dreamland because you're focusing most of your efforts on mechanics and alignment. The second class is probably the most common, which I call the oligotrophic. Some callus, not enough to get it done. And maybe this is a fracture that Dr. Reed would tell us like, maybe it's just a sleep. Maybe the stuff there is useful. We just need to kick it in the butt a little bit. And then the very familiar atrophic non-union, we just can't believe there is no biologic response at all. And those are the ones that you really need to focus on. How can I do a biologic enhancement on this fracture, which I think is gonna be a key component to the success or failure of your plan. I'm gonna leave bone defect out of this because bone defect is almost a category in and of itself. And we use a different set of things in that, particularly when the bone defects are large. But if you have a bone defect you don't treat, it's almost an automatic non-union. So if you think someone's going 
develop a non-union due to bone loss, don't wait. Go ahead and try to do the enhancement early. One thing I wanted to mention is I didn't want to get into this too much, but sometimes when we try to look at our biologic enhancement, we should focus on the host first and systemic treatments as well. And I think that getting people to do things that are reversible, such as weight loss, endocrine corrections, vitamin D corrections, quitting smoking, we should do that. But there is also uh, uh, good evidence to suggest that pulsed recombinant parathyroid replacement actually can actually help non-union treatment. It does tend to be a more biologically positive drug that's used mainly in osteoporosis treatment. I think we're trying to find this role. I think we all think it works. The drawback is it's very expensive, but I think in some uh, refractory cases and sometimes just managing them from a patient host perspective can actually eliminate the need for any surgery. I just wanted to mention that the teriparatide Forteo has had some interest in systemic treatment for non-unions. And we certainly have some successes. So when we think about biologic enhancements, I think we should think about different categories of things. I think probably the least biologically active is what we consider to be osteoconductive. This would be a situation where you're trying to provide some scaffolding for some cells to grow. Maybe this would be cancellous allograft, hydroxyapatite, maybe some calcium phosphate. These do not have a big role by themselves in non-union treatment. The second one are osteoinductive. These are ones that try to get osteoprogenitor cells to grow. The biggest representative class is the, are the bone morphogenetic proteins. And I think that the third class of biological enhancement is probably the most active and attractive, which is osteogenic. The thing that's different about this is it has live cells. I think the three in this category are cancellous autograft, intermedullary autograft via area technique, or bone marrow aspirin, which is usually combined with some other additive as well. We have a number of options. I would say that for the majority of straightforward non-unions that don't need a lot of bone, autogenous cancellous bone graft remains uh, probably the, the treatment of choice. And this is easily harvested from the anterior or posterior iliac crest. We're talking volumes of 10 to 20%. There are other areas to obtain cancellous bone grafts. Proximal tibia distal femur are also popular with some clinicians. The other way to get autogenous bone if you need higher amounts are something called the Reamer irrigator aspirator. And this is something that was developed not to actually harvest bone graft, but to decrease intermedullary pressures while reaming, while treating a femur fracture or doing a closed femoral shortening. We did find that the byproduct of this actually was very biologically active and we actually have used this for biologic enhancement for non-union treatment. I would say that some people use this a lot. I think when they've compared donor site morbidity between uh, cancellous bone graft harvest from the crest or from the uh, intermedullary rear from the femur, a couple of things are noted. I think that the donor site morbidity has been a little bit less with the local site of the incision. However, the two things about rhea that are a little bit unusual is you can have significant amounts of uh, blood loss. I've certainly had this in actually young, healthy patients where they really bleed a considerable amount, even to the point of almost requiring transfusions. And uh, you can actually get a little bit overzealous with your harvest and weaken the bone of the femur. I think that when you have more aged patients with more spacious intermediary canals, sometimes it's hard to get uh, appropriate amounts of uh, bone. At any rate, those two can th be thought of together. Bone marrow aspirin is actually kind of a newer one in the block, and I think that there have been a number of methods to try to get the gold out of the iliac crest in a minimally invasive way and get the biologically active components. Some clinicians have actually working on methods to go ahead and aspirate small aliquants of bone marrow, many of them, and try to concentrate the cells. Again, this is a pretty exciting development. I don't know if we're quite ready for a broad clinical application yet as these uh, uh, methods are being perfected as we speak. 
One thing I did want to mention for bone morphogenetic proteins, these are off-label use for non-union treatment. They have no FDA approval for that. So every time you use them, which people do use them, it should be recognized this is not an on-label application. I think that these were thought of to be fairly attractive, and maybe we can eliminate the need for bone graft altogether. And I'll I'll have comments on that a little bit further. I wanted to go back just to the remu irrigator aspirator. One of the the techniques that we use for non-union treatment when we have a bit of a defect or maybe uh, an area of previous infection is something called the masculate technique. The masculate technique is actually trying to develop an induced membrane in a cavity. A long time ago, we used to see this tissue around the cavity. We used to scrape it and throw it away. What we didn't realize is that tissue or in the cavity that we induce is actually very biologically active and is a good place to get bone graft to grow. The remer irrigator aspirator allows us to get larger volumes of bone, and we actually will put this in an area that we create uh, a couple months before, usually with a block of bone cement. You take the bone cement out once the soft tissues have matured, and you put your bone graft in there. So that's a technique we use for defects that are a little bit smaller. One thing I want to remind you is that one potential source of autogenous bone is actually from the non-union site itself. Sometimes in order to correct the um, malalignment of non-union, some of the bone has to be liberated from the site. Or if you do actually put internal fixation, you can actually harvest some of the bone. That bone is very biologically active. And I would say in the humerus and the clavicle are two common sites. I do have a hypertrophic non-union. Usually a distant autogenous bone graft is not required because there is enough bone available locally. Another technique that is used in hypertrophic non-unions is a technique I was taught when I was a fellow. Basically, it's the osteoplasty pioneered by Professor Jude, where you actually take an osteotome and you try to elevate the existing callus off the cortex of the bone and take a little bit of cortex with it. So what you end up having is you end up having a bunch of callus that's still attached to the periosteum, and you basically can open that area up and they didn't even put bone grafts in these, and they actually just closed them back up, and they tended to heal. So that's uh, peeling uh, uh, the, ca- the uh, periosteum off a little bit of cortical bone is actually just leaving behind a biologically active amount of bone, which is another way to biologically enhance the uh, non-union site. I wanted to make a comment on the use of uh, allograft bone. I do see patients referred to me with failed non-union surgery that do need biologic enhancement, and the surgeon decided to use cancellous allograft bone. Unfortunately, this is not very biologically active at all, and I would say that that's often a non-starter for someone who does need biologic enhancement in, say, an atrophic non-union. So I would say that, uh, do I use allograft in non-union treatment? The answer to that question is, I do, but I don't use it to get the fracture to heal. One way that I do use allograft bone sometimes is in the femur, usually associated with arthroplasty type fractures, is to use them as cortical strut grafts, basically as mechanical support. So I don't consider bulk allografts or cortical allografts to be biologically active. I consider them to be mechanically active, which is what I'm using them for. If you do use cancellous allograft in non-union treatment, it is often combined with uh, autograft to try to increase the volume of bone graft that you have, perhaps in a bone defect case, or sometimes it can be combined with iliac crest bone marrow aspirate, or even BMP can be controlled with allograft as well. So my recommendations are allograft alone, cancellous allograft alone for non-union biologic enhancement, probably a non-starter, but can be an additive agent. So demineralized bone matrix has been around. 
there actually is, um, this is basically allograft bone, except you take all the minerals out. It does not have a, much of a biologic punch to it, but it does have very low levels of bone morphogenetic protein. They've actually tried to compare how much BMP do you get from demineralized bone matrix compared to one of the commercially available bone morphogenic protein. It's about a million times smaller per volume. So the nice thing about a demineralized bone matrix is that there isn't a large supply. It does have some biological activity, but I would say it's not widely used in uh, non-union surgery as your main biologic agent. You know, I think this leads us to the future direction of biologic enhancement of fracture non-union. Certainly, the, all the details of fracture healing have not been fully elucidated. The systemic as well as local growth factors are very important in the steps that go forward in getting bone to form, which ultimately leads to the final pathway of bone healing. I think that local delivery efforts are also going to improve as well. So to summarize, what I would say is stick with Dr. Goodspeed's checklist and always make sure you look at the host as well as the local biology of the non-union site. I think you have to also be careful to understand that you got to make sure that the, there's healthy muscle or healthy tissue where you're going to try to do the augmentation. If you put bone graft on a sidewalk or a very poor area of tissue, it's not going to do anything at all. So you have to have good biology and the local soft tissue for your augmentations to work. And again, I think that atrophic, almost always oligotrophic some and probably hypertrophic non-unions probably don't need to worry about this so much. Again, the future developments we have are very exciting with tissue engineering, use of uh, mesenchymal stem cells, and also, like I said, some of the teriparatide type treatments are also going to take a larger role. So uh, thank you very much, Paul, for having me participate, and I hope you found some of my comments useful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Jerry. That was a great summary of uh, a variety of commercially available products that are available. I think the as we've done in previous uh, episodes in the symposium, we'd like to open it up to some discussion or questions from our other two faculty presenters, Dr. Spence Reed from Penn State and Dr. Dave Goodspeed here from University of Wisconsin as well. So Spence or Dave, do you guys have any questions uh, that you'd like to ask Jerry or, or other comments? This message is from OTA sponsor BioVentus. Treating non-union fractures can be challenging, especially in today's environment. Exogen may help. For 25 years, the Exogen Ultrasound Bone Healing System has been trusted by over 10,000 physicians to treat over a million patients. So if you're thinking about using an adjunct therapy for non-union fractures, think Exogen. Learn more at exogen.com radio. Exogen is indicated for the healing of non-union fractures and for accelerating the healing of indicated fresh fractures with no known contraindications. I have a question of kind of a comment, a question for both Dave and Jerry. It's about RIA. You know, I, I, I like RIA. I use, I use RIA. But what I've found, and I think I'm evolving in the way I use it, is, is sometimes I, I think it's, I was taught initially to compact it and, and compress it and put it in a defect. And occasionally I've gone back months later, and what I find is that the inner half of it has never been sort of penetrated by the vascularity. And so I have now started to mix it with milled allograft, not to increase its volume, but to provide better porosity for ingrowth. But I don't think that's ever been proven, or I'm not sure if I'm on the mark or not. I want to know what your ideas are with RIA. So Spence, when I was first taught how to do RIA, I actually saw the examples of people taking the RIA product, taking a lap sponge and squeezing all the stuff out of it. Almost like, a, it's almost like a hard ball, like a snowball almost. 
And it's like, that never seemed right to me. I, like you, had to go back on an occasional patient I'd put Rhea in, and you look a year later, it looks just like the, the day you put in, except it's dead rather than alive. I don't have any authoritative information on that, but I've seen the same thing. And I would say I have actually packed my Rhea bone graft a lot less tight than I used to, maybe for the same reason to not get it quite so compacted. I agree. Spence, we're looking back at a series of RIA usages at our institution and have a, a series that we're just studying for hopefully a publication and finding a, a fair number of, of failures. And I think one of the things is, is technique, which you just said, which I think is too tightly packed. I don't, there's no way to tell that retrospectively, but I, as I've talked to other people, and watch them or watch videos. That's one thing that uh, I've noticed is I believe that I packed them too tightly. I do think also, just as an aside, I think that open fractures with stripped periosteum, this is really more of a bone defect than it is a strict non-union, but open fractures with stripped periosteum from the shaft portion of the bone defect feel that the rhea does not integrate well with that interface. And as Jerry said, you come back later for a follow-up surgery and it looks just like oatmeal. It's just laying there with the same look that it had the day you put it in. So I'm finding that in those situations, I think that bone transport and or acute shortening works better. It's just more dependable. Not necessarily the point of Jerry's talk, but I feel like that's a statement that I just have to make. Yeah. The whole masculate question for me has always been interesting. And I, I think in the femur, Matt, the masculate technique is pretty reliable. I think it's pretty reliable in the proximal tibia, but I think when you get down in the distal third, distal fourth to the tibia, at least in my hands and my partner's hands as well, the masculate technique is unreliable. I mean, you, everybody will show good cases, but I think there's a reliability issue in that location because of the biologic envelope that's not there in the distal fifth or quarter of the tibia. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that's really helped, Spence, is uh, our abilities in defect reconstructions. I think our options have increased. And um, we're trying to figure out which ones work best. I think that I wouldn't say bone print transport's gotten easy because it's still kind of tough, but it has gotten a little bit easier. I think that my preferences have shifted more towards that than doing masculates. I used to masculates only in my career earlier. I do less of them now. I loved your description of the osteoperiosteal osteotome lifting up around the non-union. And actually, it, Jim Kellum taught me that, and he called it petaling the non-union, like a flower, like you were petaling it and opening up the petals of the flower to create living bone grafts. I loved your description of it. He taught me that as well. And what I think about sometimes is I'm making a, a bone graft pita sandwich. I'm taking my <laughs> osteotome and just lifting up and getting, making a space between the, the bone on one side and the callus and periosteum on the other side. And that's my pita bread that I've split. And then I stick bone, stick bone graft inside my pita bread, which um, that I've done that a number of times. But I think of Dr. Kellum fondly whenever I do that, which is a pretty standard treatment for me for non-unions. Yeah, I learned that from Jerry when I was a resident. So uh, we must all trace back to Kellum. Hey, uh, Spence, I was just curious, uh, we, you know, talking about biological augmentation for non-unions and allograft with biologics alone with no autograft, we don't use that much here. And I was just curious your thoughts on that. We, I would say we use allograft mostly for 
like as a hamburger helper for in increasing the volume of the graft or increasing the porosity of the graft, but as a standalone non-union biological enhancer, allograft plus BMP or allograft plus some other biologic with no autograft, do you use that very often? I would say we, Paul, we probably use that pretty not much here. What do you think, Spence? I would say that it's only in, in situations where it's a terrible host and there's terrible donor sites. Paul, you, you got thoughts on that? Where it's a terrible, that's what I would use, a terrible donor site where the pelvis is just going to be mush and yeah, that would be it. I think the other thing too is sometimes people think it's like, maybe if I do an autograph and add BMP, I'll have a super sauce that'll work for sure. I don't think it's been substantiated, but I think some people have those thoughts. I've certainly used autograft and BMP together when I have a very large acute defect. Whether it was necessary or not, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. We've talked a lot about, and I think a lot of the literature is discussing, you know, rhea versus autograph bone. But I, one of the questions I was going to ask everybody was, when do you pull a trigger and use BMP in your experience? And I would say in my relatively shorter career compared to you all, I have only used it a few times, but it's in situations in which there is a compromised local soft tissue biology and or you're elevating a flap and you essentially don't ever want to have to come back. So you're essentially throwing everything at this non-union. But I typically, as you guys mentioned, will use it in conjunction with some autograft that has been harvested possibly with allograft to expand it. But because again, the BMP itself typically needs to have some structure that's added to it. But I think that that's a question for you all as well. You know, are there certain factors or any of those components of the checklist that Dr. Goodspeed mentioned, or any certain combination of those checklist items that will almost reliably cause you to pull the trigger and use BMP? So Paul, I would say that uh, I was very excited when BMP came along. It never really was played a large role in my practice, but I would say it's actually decreased. So I don't use it as much as I used to, and I don't use it that, that much to start with. But I think the yep. time it factors in for me when I do really do have an older person, I do think that the uh, options for autographs are fairly limited due to osteoporosis. I still do autogenous bone graft in people that are quite old, but if I have someone that has a reason that they're not a good candidate, maybe super obese, or there's something that uh, making bone graft, getting bone graft cells would be impossible. And Spence, could you repeat what you had said about that one particular circumstance in which you tend to reach for BMP? It would be someone, a host who's terribly debilitated, who I think that either the bone at the donor site is not going to be good or that the donor site harvest is going to be morbid. And again, mm -hmm. it, it's not common and it's usually somebody quite old. Mm -hmm. I, I want to make one comment about, about use of BMP is... I used it one time in, in an acute fracture in the in a proximal tibia, kind of like a, a Schatzker six putt with a big segmental defect. And I put it under a flap and the flap went down. The entire knee ossified and fused. Hmm. And that's been reported. And so I will warn you, if, if you've got something that's communicating with a capsule of a joint, don't use BMP. Good point. Word of warning. I have two other questions. First one I'll ask to Jerry and the second one I'll ask to the panel. For Jerry, you mentioned one of the potential complications that probably most of us who have done RIA have seen to some extent is significant blood loss. One of the other reported complications is iatrogenic fracture. Have you seen that or have you? Dave and I have both experienced that. It's fairly early in our experience. I'll talk about mine. I was happened to be working with one of my favorite residents 
And all of a sudden, somehow during the middle of the case, the guide wire somehow got outside the femur. I'm like, how did that happen? And sure enough, we knew that we had created a hole in the femur. I thought about putting a nail down prophylactically, but I did not. And the patient came back two weeks later after falling out of her bunk bed and broke her femur. So we had to nail her femur two weeks later. I think if I did run in that situation now, I'd know enough to actually drop a nail down before that uh, were to happen. Mm -hmm. How about you, Goody? Somewhat of a similar experience, an aggressive reaming and not being careful enough to monitor on a lateral view with a guide wire bent, trying to get as much as we could out of the distal femur. And I think that's risky and reamed through the shaft, made an iatrogenic hole in the shaft, sent the patient down the next day for x-rays. And while she was getting the x-rays, she snapped her femur. And when we had to bring her back for a nail. So it definitely happened to me. Yeah, that rhea tip is very sharp. It is very sharp. Yeah, the last question uh, I thought it'd be helpful to ask is, you know, a lot of people talk about one of the advantages of doing rhea or using BMP is that it decreases the donor site morbidity from autograft, iliac crest, bone graft harvest. So I just wanted to ask people, I think that's a question, you know, what is your best kind of description of how much does that that bone graft harvest hurt patients? You know, how much do your patients complain about the bone graft harvest site, whether anterior crest or posterior crest? And then I think the second question that you can answer both together is, is you know, do you feel like there's a pretty reliable volume of bone graft that can be obtained from anterior crest or posterior crest? And do you consider that? Have you seen sort of a relatively consistency? In my hands, I can always get X amount of cc's of bone graft from those different sites. And therefore, do you think about that and say, okay, I, I need more than the anterior crest will get me. I'm going to do posterior crest in this case, or I'm going to do anterior crest plus rhea. How do you think about crest harvest in the context of the volume of bone graft that's needed for, say, a you know moderate size segmental defect? Well, Paul, I'll take that one first. First of all, I'll talk about my perception of the morbidity of doing bone grafting harvest. And I have to admit, I actually have done a lot of bone graft harvest, and I'm pretty cautious when I do it. I do it through a trap door through the anterior uh, iliac crest. I put the trap door back when I'm done. And I would say that patients have largely not complained from their bone graft harvest sites from the crest. I have had patients that actually have had rhea, and they actually don't even know we actually took bone graft from them. That's how, how little they hurt. But the majority of patients do hurt back there as well. So I would say... Slight nudge to rhea, but not, not by a wide margin. And do I get stoned sometimes by getting less graft than I thought? The answer is yes. That happens both in the crest and with rhea as well. I take a lot of bone graft from the proximal tibia through Gertie's tubercle, at least for, for uh, not for segmental defect, but if I have a clavicle non-union, a humeral non-union, where I need some bone, that has become really a, a well, well-tolerated harvest site for me. I backfill it with cancellous cubes and packed it. And then my second one would be probably the anterior crest. I have had a couple of uh, lateral femoral nerve issues from anterior crest harvest with a little vigorous retraction. And, and those people were, were a bit unhappy. But I don't think the harvest site morbidity is as bad as I hear people talk about sort of from the podium. Mm -hmm. And Spence, what volume approximately would you say you typically get from the proximal tibia reliably? And do you let them weight bear right away or do protect weight bearing? I always let them weight bear. Absolutely. I, you know, I think reliably you can easily get like, you know, 20 cc's without putting them at too much risk at all. I, I've probably taken over a hundred, I'm not kidding, over a hundred proximal tibia bone grafts. And I've had one 
propagation of a fracture line over to the medial side that needed a knee immobilizer for a couple of weeks, but nobody that needed any kind of surgery. And I've had, knock on wood, no infections. So I know Dave, Dave, you and I did those together at Penn State. Yep, I agree. I use uh, proximal tibia. That's my go-to harvest site for moderate amounts of bone graft, which is what I think you asked. And Spence, I think you might even be able to probably underselling it. I think it's probably gets a little more than 20 cc's, 30, 35. Uh, if you really, if you use curved curettes, I backfill it with allograft. I do think that's pretty important. Before I started backfilling, many years ago, I had an opportunity to have an MRI and one or two of them, and they do form a cystic lesion if you did not backfill it. Once you backfill it, though, it heals up really nicely. So I think that's my favorite bone site for least amount of morbidity. Weight bearing is tolerated right away. Do backfill it. Uh, if I need even larger amounts, I probably feel I can get a larger amount from the crest. It's probably more likely anterior than posterior because the patient is more commonly supine. I mean, I think it does hurt a little bit, but I try to avoid the crest, particularly in highly obese patients, just because of the the wound is in a kind of a crease. If I do have to take bone grafts from the crest and obese, I would use an incisional vac dressing. And then Rhea, probably the largest amounts, but we've had some failures as we talked about earlier. Great. Well, that was a fantastic discussion, just hitting on a lot of points that were covered in Jerry's talk and are relevant to the discussions, the pre-op planning and everything. So we really thank you again to all three of the faculty for your contributions. And this wraps up the third episode in this non-union symposium. And so if you haven't listened to the first two, again, check those out. Our final episode, which will be coming up on the OTA podcast channel, will be a, a discussion of some cases illustrating some of these key principles that we've been discussing over these first three episodes. So be sure to look for that. And again, thanks for listening to the OTA podcast. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at ota.org.